According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We take this moment to uh, silence our cell phones and uh, get our coffee poured and brought up here. <coughs> Try to keep my voice going for at least the next 59 minutes. Turn, if you will, to Mark chapter 9. This will be our final session in this episode. <clears throat> Disciples contend about greatness. It's actually a series of events, a single episode with a series of events, and they all center on the need for humility. Forgot to turn on my mouse. There we go. This single episode is actually a series of events which all center on the need for humility, and most of them came out of the Gospel of Matthew. <clears throat> so that was point one in the outline. This single episode is actually a series of events which all center on the need for humility. Second, later point two, we looked at all of Matthew's events, six of them. Did you get that full enough? Thank you. <clears throat> the real trick will be drinking without spilling any of it. All right. Yes, I am a professional coffee drinker. It was a skill that I initially developed in the restaurant and that I mastered in the army. All right. Matthew's events, six of them where they were arguing about greatness, where he illustrated with a child, where he warned them about stumbling blocks, <clears throat> where uh, he taught them about the 90 and 9, went into the issues on corporate discipline, sometimes called church discipline, and then the settling of accounts with the, uh, the two slaves there, all of which came out of Matthew chapter 18. There are two final items, though, that we bring in from the parallel accounts to be found in Mark and in Luke, uh, last week we focused on uh, the non-follower who was casting out demons and the problem that the apostles had with that. John was the spokesman. The apostle John <clears throat> was the one that brought it to Jesus' attention. But he uses the phrase we in uh, lodging the complaint. And so we realize that John is not alone in the objection. All of the disciples had a problem with this non-follower, this non-disciple casting out demons in Jesus' name. And so... We uh, studied the principles there. We saw that if he's not against us, he's for us. And, and we need to have a grace perspective re with relationship to other believers that the Lord is using in other capacities that may not necessarily be uh, lined up precisely with who we are and what we have going on. For today, though, we're ready for the last bit of this, which is simply called Salted with Fire under subpoint B. And it's two short verses of Mark chapter 9. The final two verses, verses 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Before we take a look at this or even try to understand any of it, let's take time for prayer, making certain that each one of us is equipped with the Holy Spirit in fellowship and prepared to study eternal truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day and for the truth of your word. We thank you for each brother and sister here this morning that took the time and uh, traveled here and, and uh, Father, set aside their time and determined to uh, 
to study, to show themselves approved before your face, workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so, Father, we ask for distractions to be set aside. We uh, realize, Father, that uh, more and more there is uh, opposition to your word. There are more acts of violence taking place in churches. There's more uh, disruption taking place in various places. We look to you to provide, we look to you to protect, and we look to you to continue keeping the priorities grounded in your word. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. So we'll see how long my, my voice goes. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. There's, there's uh, some subpoints we'll have to cover in this. and uh, But like I say, it's two short verses. And so if, if we get through the material and I run out of voice, then we'll just call it a day. How does that sound? All right, verse 49. I say that occasionally, and then I end up going five minutes long, and I don't know. It just happens. All right. <clears throat> Everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will be salted with fire. All right? So if you're someone, that's you. All right? The only people that are not included in everyone are... That's right. No one. <laughs> yeah. Somebody. If you're somebody, you're included in everybody. The only way to not be included in anybody is to be nobody. So if you are somebody, you're in that verse. Everyone will be salted with fire. Now, there are places, of course, where everyone has a, an additional definition, for instance, and Scripture does that in, in many places. But in this place, we do not have a qualification to the phrase everyone. If everyone is used absolutely without qualification, then we have to accept Scripture's record on that. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? In other words, if the salt becomes unsalty, how do you recharge that? How do you, how do you restore that? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Some points of study now. This doctrinal principle can be found in Matthew and Luke. But it is unique to Mark as an epilogue. We talk about the events that are unique to Mark. Mark is the shortest gospel and there is not a great amount of material that's unique to Mark. So whenever you come across something unique to Mark, it grabs your attention. This doctrinal principle. All right. Bob, can you close those doors for me? Thank you. <clears throat> what doctrinal principle? The principle of salt. All right. The scriptures have quite a bit to say about salt. This doctrinal principle can be found in Matthew and Luke. In Matthew, it's chapter 5. In Luke, it's chapter 14. Neither one of which is parallel to this present episode. There are other episodes. Matthew 5 was the Sermon on the Mount. We handled that years ago. All right. Luke 14 is another Sermon on the Mount parallel, but presented at a later point in Christ's uh, ministry. We'll talk about that a little bit this morning. However, it is unique to Mark as an epilogue to the self-amputation Gehenna message. If you were here a couple weeks back, we covered that. It's better to chop off your hand. Uh, if your hand causes you to stumble, it's better to chop it off and enter into life crippled than to be cast into the fire. The, that is the aspect of Gehenna. If, uh, I won't take the time to go back and reteach all that. We covered that in the uh, earlier part of this outline. But simply notice the context. Before we get to verses 49 and 50, look where it follows. It follows 
the message in verses 42 through 48. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him. If, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he has been cast into the sea. This is what I've titled the unthinkable alternative. When you contrast something with an unthinkable alternative, you realize that you are describing something that has a, a level of severity. You are discussing something that you, just, you can't even put something in comparison to it. So you describe it in terms of an unthinkable alternative. And that's what we have here. Likewise, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. There again is an unthinkable alternative. And so it's, it's a literary device. It's a means of communication by which you can use an extreme in order to make a point. Uh, the Lord uses it in many, many places. He even talks about hating uh, your father and mother as a language of extreme to show the contrast describing the intensity with which we are expected to love the Lord your God. That if you do not hate your father and mother, then, you're, then you don't love God. And that's the, the illustration of the passage there. In any event, we're not promoting self-amputation. And I think I made that clear a few weeks ago, and I want to make that clear again today. I don't want anybody chopping off hands or plucking out eyes. All right? <clears throat> But that's the context for this. And the unthinkable alternative of being cast into hell is a, uh, an aspect of fire that you and I don't have to face. But everybody faces fire of some kind. That's what this passage is saying. We're not going to face the Gehenna fire, but we have fire to face. And that's uh, the contrast, and hopefully we'll, we'll catch on to that here before we're done. So you have the um, unquenchable fire in verse 43. And then um, you can skip over 44 and 46 because it belongs in verse 48. That's fine. Verse 45, again, you have the reference to hell or Gehenna. Verse 47, again, Gehenna. And then uh, verse 48 that is legitimate to the manuscripts, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The second definition to the unquenchable fire. The fact that the eternal lake of fire is, in fact, the lost estate for all eternity. An ongoing eternal destruction. Not an annihilation. Not a ceasing to exist. Not a, a, a void or nothingness for the lost estate. But an, an eternal continued existence in ongoing burning destruction. This then forms the epilogue. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The salt principle is taught here as an epilogue to the Gehenna fire message. Now, it's not the only place where you can teach the salt principle. You can teach the salt principle in a variety of contexts. It's like the, uh, the doctrine of the rapture for example, which we're doing right now in 1 Corinthians. We're teaching the doctrine of the rapture, but we're doing so in a 1 Corinthians 15 context as it relates to the resurrection material from 1 Corinthians 14. It may be on another occasion that we will approach it from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, for example. Does that make it a different doctrine? No, it's the same doctrine. It's just coming from a different context. 
Well, it's going to come up again in John 14. Because in John 14, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, he says, uh, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, when I return again, I will receive you to myself, that where I am going, you may go also. All right? So we're going to have rapture information that comes up in John chapter 14. But it's a different context. Because in John 14, they're clueless with respect to the church. They don't know a thing about the church. Church is still mystery in John 14 when he's talking about going and coming again. So you have to be able to teach rapture from the particular context where you're approaching it. Same thing with salt, any doctrine. You're going to approach it from one aspect and then you want to see the totality of it. And so that's what we're doing. All right, hold your finger there. Let's look at, remind ourselves now of Matthew chapter 5 and uh, Luke 14. Matthew chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. After the Beatitudes, happy are, happy are, happy are. Then we get to uh, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. It's a combination message. Starts with salt in verse 13 and includes light in verse 14. And we often combine them as salt and light. You and I want to maintain ourselves as salt and light. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? So you see that the content is similar or identical to what we have in in Mark 9. But the context is different. Here he is giving them a message in anticipation of the coming kingdom. Over in Mark 9, he's giving them the same message, but anticipation of the coming cross and the need for humility. So uh, if it's saltless, how do you make it salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You, can, you can't use it to uh, season your food anymore. So what, what good is it? We say, well, you can throw it on the ice and get traction in your driveway. Right. If you're not from the north, you don't know what I'm talking about. You've never salted your driveway. Then poor unfortunate Texans, you. Okay. So we got the concepts of salt and light in the context of Matthew five sermon on the Mount, anticipating the coming kingdom. Okay. That's one realm in which, yes, we want to be able to maintain our salt and light responsibilities. The need for humility is another realm in which we want to maintain our salt and light responsibilities. Turning over to Luke 14, largely similar. Only in this uh, context, the approach comes to it from the standpoint of discipleship, comes to the from the standpoint of Considering the cost, estimating whether it is truly something you want to go ahead with, whether that's uh, and here again, we see the language of hating your own father and mother in verse 26 and wife and children and brothers and sisters. See, so, uh, you know, if you don't hate your wife, then you're not fulfilling this verse. Wait, stop. Understand the idiom. (laughs) Got to understand the idiom. Understand the language of extreme that's used as the contrast. Then uh, counting the cost. If you're going to build a tower, don't you first sit down and calculate the cost to see if you have enough to complete it? 
You know, we're thinking about building a new church facility. Don't we have to stop and consider the cost? How much is two acres of land going to cost? How much is a 10,000 square foot building going to cost and, and everything else? You'd be a fool not to. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation he's not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, look at this guy. See, there's a bridge in Amsterdam called um, the Skinny Bridge. You ever been there? Ever seen it? And it's, it's amazing. These two sisters started to build it because one lived on one side, the other lived on the other side. Anyway, they start building this bridge and they get, they're, they're building it simultaneously from each side, evidently. And they get partway across and they ran out of money. And so they finished it with a, just a very narrow walkway. And so on the, on the edges, it's large enough for a wagon, you know, vehicle traffic back then, horse and wagon. But you get to the middle of the river and it's just enough for a person to walk across. It's the goofiest thing in the world. But it's, it's an illustration of this very thing. If you didn't count the cost ahead of time, then it's something that uh, tourists are going to laugh at in later centuries. Same thing if you're going to go to war. The king better figure out if he's going to win this war or not. If, he's, if he can't win it, then he either can't go to war or he has to find uh, some way to sue for peace and, uh, and uh, change the political environment there. So... That leads you into verse 34. Therefore, if uh, uh, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, uh, with what will it be seasoned? It's useless either for the soil or for the manure. It's uh, for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we have the same salt message. The doctrinal principle found three different places, all three different context for their uh, for their presentation. Here it is unique to Mark as an epilogue to the self-amputation Gehenna message. All right, vocabulary under point two. The verb halizo and the noun halas. The little accent on top of the A is your rough breather. It really is not a letter, it's just a breathing mark. But it sounds like the breathing of the English letter H, and so we typically will put an H in front of the word. H-A-L-I-Z-O, halizo. H-A-L-I-Z-O, halizo, number 233, that's your verb, to salt, or to season with salt. And then halas, H-A-L-A-S, is the noun. And these are about the most boring word studies you'll ever do. It means salt. (laughs) All right? It means in Greek what salt means in English. And there's really no question as to what it means, how you translate it, or how you use it. So they're rather boring in terms of word studies, but they are important for application. In fact, one of the most mundane um, elements of daily life is salt. It'd be like oil. These are common elements of daily life. Every household, except, I guess, the, the most poor of the poor, the most destitute on the earth... Every household is going to have oil, and every household is going to have salt. See? And so God uses these most common household items to, uh, to point out the most important teaching with respect to the Christian way of life. Oil, of course, representing the Holy Spirit, but salt here representing the preservative aspect of God and his plan. We'll talk about that. Halidzo, the verb, is found in Matthew 5.13, the verse we just read as well as Mark 9.49, our passage here today. Halos, the noun, 
is used twice in Matthew 5.13, as well as Mark 9.50, our passage today, as well as Luke 14.34, two occasions. We've read all those verses already. The only verse we've not yet read is Colossians 4.6. So take a look at that. Colossians 4.6. And as soon as we read Colossians 4.6, we'll have read every salt verse of the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Gentiles eat pork chops. They may also eat popcorn, which is how I remember it. But then somebody pointed out to me, it's no big deal if Gentiles eat popcorn. If Gentiles eat pork chops, that sets them apart from the Jews who, of course, do not eat pork chops. But if you remember popcorn, then that works too. Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 4, 6. Notice the... uh, Look what I did. I turned there and then I turned back when I went to get my coffee. Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech... Let me back up a little bit. Devote yourselves to prayer in verse 2. And um, the prayer aspect includes verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4. The prayer attitude is essential to the uh, external deeds, the conduct that's mentioned in verses 5 and following. Believers that are really focused on their external deeds and yet don't have a developed prayer life are putting the cart before the horse. The developed prayer life precedes, in fact, motivates and empowers the appropriate conduct. In any event, verse 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Verse 6, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And I love it when imperatives begin with the English word let. I love it when we have the word let because it puts in perspective the fact that we're not doing it, we're letting it happen. We're letting God do the work. We're letting God transform our speech. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. So in the uh, application of it here, we see that it applies to something that you and I are commanded to do on a daily basis, on a continuous basis. All right, point three. Leviticus 2.13. If you want a clue in how to understand salt, key verse, Leviticus 2.13. Influences our interpretation of salt and also influences the manuscript tradition. There are some variant text traditions in uh, Mark 9. Every variant a result of an influence on the part of Leviticus. So Leviticus 2.13 influences our interpretation of salt and also influenced the manuscript tradition. As a hermeneutical guide, we observe the connection between salt and fire in every offering. So let's look at Leviticus 2.13 and then make note. There's a connection between salt and fire. And it may not be obvious. 
But Leviticus makes it obvious, and I think it brings the connection back to Mark 9, why salt is so connected to the Gehenna fire uh, warning passage that's found there in Mark chapter 9. Leviticus 2.13. Something we've often done in, in our studies is we've recognized the use of symbols, we've recognized the use of metaphors, uh, for instance, I mentioned a few minutes ago, oil is so frequently a picture of God, the Holy Spirit. And that is a consistent picture throughout Scripture from Old Testament to New Testament across the genre from the legal writings to the poetic writings to the prophetic writings to the Gospels to the New Testament uh, in so many ways. Likewise, with salt, we have a consistent thread all the way throughout. There are many, many symbols that have a consistency from Genesis to Revelation. Salt is one such. All right. Leviticus chapter two. And all the focus in Leviticus is on the various offerings from the burnt to the meal, to the grain, to the sin, to the trespass, uh, red heifer offerings, uh, drink offerings, libations, all kinds of offerings throughout Leviticus. There's so many, in fact, that your head can spin and you can get confused and uh, lost in the details. We don't want to get lost in the details. But one little verse that kind of gets skipped over and overlooked, and yet here it is, with Leviticus 2.13, Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt. It's an additional detail, and yet it's one that cannot be ignored. You shall season every grain offering with salt, that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. Now, the salt of the covenant of your God is amazing. You go back to Genesis 12 and you see the covenant made with Abraham and you scour the passage. Can't find any salt, <laughs> right? The Lord God said, I will be with you. Go where I tell you to go. Leave your country and so forth. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And on you and your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. You got the Abrahamic covenant and you're scouring for salt. And you're not finding it. And you look at how the covenant's confirmed to Isaac and you're not seeing any salt. And you see how the covenant's confirmed to Jacob, you're not seeing any salt. And then you're seeing when they're delivered out of Egypt and the Mosaic law is given, the covenant there is given to Moses. And it's interesting, we have a reference here, the salt of the covenant of your God. And we have to understand, well, what is this salt then? If it's not spelled out, what is this salt? How is this the... Uh, the uh, the fact that Israel is a covenant nation, is, is there an element of that that makes it salt upon this earth? Some different things there. We'll talk about it coming up. Hopefully, we'll have a full uh, dose of salt here before, uh, before we depart. But every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, or you shall salt with salt. So that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. If you don't, here's the key, lacking. If you don't season it, your offering is lacking. Now the offering is Godward. The offering is a spiritual function and it's, it goes up before the, uh, the throne of grace. Alright? So we understand that right off the bat. When you and I offer anything, it's Godward. We offer a sacrifice of praise, it's Godward. And the sacrifice of... of um, Thanksgiving, it's Godward. We offer, we put money in the grace box, it's Godward. Okay? But there must be salt to go with what's Godward. It's the additional seasoning, 
And we're going to see that there's a benefit here in the earthly realm. Some of these things as they come out. They shall not be lacking from your grain offering. If you leave it out, then it's lacking. And your offering, your, your Godward offering then, becomes deficient. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. We're told in verse 13. This is where, let me put a reading up where, oh, I didn't start it up. I got Libronics running here. Some of the uh, versions that you may be reading, you may have this morning. You have a King James with you this morning, or you have a New King James with you this morning. Then in Mark 9:49, your verse is a little bit longer. Let me get back here to Mark 9. Where the American Standard, the NIV, the Holman, and uh, the Net Bible, the Weiss Translation, most other translations, stop with the word fire. For everyone will be salted with fire. If you have a King James or a New King James, then you have a little bit more beyond that. And I'll show you where that comes in here. All right. Too small. There we go. New King James Version says, For everyone will be seasoned with fire. Then it goes on, And every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. There's even a footnote in there that says that the, uh, the, Nestle, uh, the Nestle text, UBS text, does not have that part of the verse. Now, why did these text variants come up? It's interesting. I'll just bring up what Metzger has to say about this. Metzger gives it a B ranking, by the way, which is not an A ranking. The A ranking is absolute certainty. The B ranking is some room for uh, for question the opening words of this verse have been transmitted in three principal forms uh, the first form is what the new american standard followed uh, where everyone with fire will be salted the second form adds and every sacrifice with fire or with uh, salt will be salted and then the third reading for everyone will be salted with fire and every sacrifice will be salted with salt so there's three variant readings. They come from Leviticus. And they get blended as Leviticus gets blended into the text of Mark. The history of the text seems to have been as follows. At a very early period, a scribe, having found in Leviticus 2.13 a clue to the meaning of Jesus' statement, wrote the Old Testament passage in the margin of his copy of Mark. He's copying the scroll of Mark and he's copying the verse down but then in the margin, for his own edification and in his own notes, he writes down the text from Leviticus 2.13. Okay. Well, in subsequent copyings of the marginal gloss, then gets copied in and added to the verse itself. A scribe in a later century is reading the manuscript and he sees the note in the margin and puts it into the text itself actually a fairly common circumstance with hand-copied manuscripts. So in subsequent copyings, the marginal gloss was either substituted for the words of the text, 
thus creating reading two, or it was added to the words of the text, thus creating reading number three. There are a couple of other minor variants that are out there. Codex, uh, the uh, Uncio manuscript Theta there from the ninth century, uses a different word rather than um, salted, uses analothesatai, will be consumed with fire. I'm going to share this tonight with, uh, since uh, the third year Greek class is currently going through a text criticism workshop, I'm going to show them this very scripture passage and show them how some of these things get miscopied. I can blow this one up large enough. I'll show you what, how it happens. Because sometimes you look at it in English and say, well, that's just... Uh, I don't, I don't see how you can confuse seasoned with consumed, right? Or salted with consumed. So let me just make it bigger. Remembering that in the early manuscripts, everything was capital letters. And so on a low... Versus the alpha, the lambda. You see how a lambda followed by an iota right there could be blended together into a new. Make sense? Particularly if you're talking about these handwritten manuscripts that remember when our New Testament was copied, it was not professional scribes doing it. These these texts were illegal. We're talking about believers in the home copying things after dark by candlelight or hiding down in the catacombs. Hardly an environment conducive to uh, <laughs> accurate text transmission, right? So you have, uh, and then also there's a confusion between the omega and the iota and the application there. So in any event, these are some of the things that you work with when you're dealing with manuscripts and how variant readings can come in. And you say, well... I don't understand how um, certain things can be that way because uh, to be seasoned or to be consumed don't seem to be very close. Well, they are in Greek if the, the letters are blended and if uh, one word is, is exchanged for the other. So that becomes a neat exercise right there. All right. So we have the influence of Leviticus 2.13. There's the improper Manuscript influence that introduced a, a, a corruption into the text. Um, but there is actually the proper interpretational influence where we want to understand that we are to have salt in ourselves. All right. Salt is good. Everyone will be salted with, with fire. And salt is good. We're also told in verse 50, have this salt in yourselves. So. No one can doubt that there's a parallel or there's an influence. In Leviticus, every sacrifice has to be salted with salt. And in Mark, every believer has to be salted with salt. Makes sense since we're living sacrifices, are we not? So what is this salt and how is this salt expressed? How is this salt applied or featured in our lives? We'll get to that here in a moment. Point four. <coughs> we have to figure out what this fire is about. If everyone will be salted with fire, what fire are we headed for? 
Let me tell you, we're not headed for Gehenna. And that's point four. Since the destruction of Gehenna's fire is not for our destruction, the refining fire of our testing, what you and I go through on a daily basis, the refining fire of our testing in time is for our seasoning. Since the destruction of Gehenna's fire is not for our destruction. We're not headed for the Gehenna fire, and yet everyone is seasoned with fire. The refining fire of our testing in time is for our seasoning. That's how you get salted. You go through the testing. Now we're going to look at Judges 9.45 for one um, cross-reference that again matches salt with destruction. I think we need to pair up salt with fire and salt with the destruction and understanding that Gehenna's fire is a destruction fire. The fire you and I face is for our edification, is for our building up, but they both have a salt component. Judges 9.45. And I think if you combine Judges 9.45 with Mark 9 and the reference to Gehenna fire... Again and again, I think it's appropriate to identify the Gehenna fire as the salting of those uh, unbelievers that are cast there for all eternity. Judges 9.45. We have Abimelech in this chapter. And do I really want to read? No. If you're ever um, playing a Bible trivia game and for whatever reason uh, they ask who the first king of Israel is and they're trying to tell you it's not Saul. This is a pre-Saul king of Israel. You can put king in quotes. He's an illegitimate king, not ordained by the Lord and certainly not approved by the Lord. But they uh, acted as if he was a king here. Bramble, really. All right, let me avoid the rest of that then. Let's just grab verse 45. Abimelech fought against the city all that day, and he captured the city and killed the people who were in it. Now notice, then he raised the city and sowed it with salt. What does that mean? What means when you sow the land with salt? You're destroying that land's fertility. You're ruining that land's soil for any future crops. That's right. And so we recognize that here is Salt applied in a destruction application. Well, what is Gehenna? Gehenna is a destruction application. And it's a fire application. So, another connection between fire and salt that may not be as obvious. Well, we're not headed for that. We are not destined to destruction. In fact, the, the whole uh, promise that uh, whosoever believeth in him should not what? Should not perish, which is a term of destruction, apoluo. So we're not headed for destruction. Yet we are exposed to fire. And the, the fire that we're exposed to is a refining fire, not a destroying fire. The refining fire of our testing in time is for our seasoning. And so for this we have 1 Peter 1.7 and 1 Peter 4.12. 
1 Peter 1, 7 and 1 Peter 4, 12. <coughs> All right. <coughs> Voice is holding up a little bit. Might make it. All right. Verse 3 says, <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through <clears throat> the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Remember, Old Testament saints could be born again. They were born again. But they were not born again to a living hope in the sense that they were not born again and placed in a body of a risen Savior. They were born again with the hope of a Savior yet to come. They were born to a coming hope. We're born again to a living hope <coughs> through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, uh, <clears throat> verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. This is the description of the Christian way of life. It is only for a little while. Doesn't matter how long you've been saved. Right? I think uh, Ethel this morning has the longest salvation status. Nobody else in this room was saved before Ethel got saved. And she's just been saved for a little while. Right? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. You know, I got saved in 1973. What was that? That's just a little while. I got saved in the... 50s or the 40s or the 30s or whatever, just a little while. Oldest believer I ever knew was Mrs. Box, 106 years old. Got saved when she was 10. And she'd been born again for more than 90 years. That's just a little while. <clears throat> Even though now for a little while, if necessary, and it is, you have been distressed by, and I love the phrase, various trials, like we have in James. Count it all joy when you encounter Various trials or diverse temptations, yeah. <clears throat> the fact is that God doesn't just give us one test at a time. <laughs> Unless you're really a baby, just got saved this morning. No, chances are you're getting tested with a couple of things, three things, four things, five things on your plate all at once. Not too much for you to bear, but enough for you to realize that you can't handle it. <laughs> So that the proof of your faith, notice the, the demonstration of your faith, the display of your faith through this uh, approval, the approving display of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though, notice now, tested by fire. Well, what's the fire there in verse 7? It's the various trials from verse 6. The things you're going through are your trial by fire, your marriage test, your family test, your financial test, your health test, whatever it is. And see, this is the fire we face. We're not headed for the Gehenna fire. But everyone's going to be salted with fire. <clears throat> May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, and if you respond, the better you respond to this fire in time, the less fire you'll see at the judgment seat of Christ. <laughs> because that's the ultimate and final fire for every single one of us, where the wood hand stumble is consumed and uh, the gold, silver, precious stones are then 
preserved. All right, next chapter, or not next chapter, but a few pages back to chapter 4. In verse 12, and I like the way this comes in this context of, uh, of suffering. Chapter begins, since Christ has suffered, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. What purpose? The purpose of suffering. The purpose of being obedient to the plan of the Father. And so, um, in the outworking of this, there will be spiritual gifts. Being fervent in your love for one another. Hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a gift, employ in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whatever your gift is. If you're a pastor teacher, if you're an evangelist, if you're an exhorter, if you're a comforter, if you're an administrator, if you're a leader, if you're a helper, if you're a giver. There's 11 permanent spiritual gifts for the dispensation of the church. Whatever your gift is. It's supposed to be used to edify your fellow uh, brother in Christ. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. They're speaking gifts and serving gifts in verse 11. Beloved, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. See, when a local church gets excited about spiritual gifts and starts training spiritual gifts and starts developing ministries and and the Lord starts working, oh, you better believe the fire is going to heat up. Absolutely. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. <laughs> like, oh, what am I doing wrong? Why do I have these problems? No, it's what are you doing right? Why do you have these tests? Keep it up. <laughs> to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. And that's the... Uh, the promise of it there. <coughs> All right. What is the seasoning of our salt? It's a grace application. The seasoning of the believer's salt is a grace application, Colossians 4 6, for the production of peace. The seasoning of the believer's salt is a grace application for the production of peace. This is where we have a man word. Direction to something that's primarily Godward. The sacrifice is primarily Godward, but it must be seasoned with salt. The effect of that salt is primarily manward. The seasoning of the believer's salt is a grace application, Colossians 4 6, for the production of peace, Mark 9 50. And I enjoy this. To me, this is um, this is a principle that allows me to be relaxed about brothers and sisters in Christ and what they're doing. It uh, they may have a tradition in their church background. They might have a practice in their uh, particular uh, denomination or their background or what have you. And uh, it's not a practice that I participate in. But I'm not condemning them for what they're doing. So let's take a look at it. Again, we were there not too long ago. Colossians 4, 6. Let it happen. Let your speech always be with grace. 
So we see that it's a grace application. No grace, no salt. I think one of the biggest problems is is too much knowledge without grace. People are applying the grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And they've totally skipped over the grace and that comes in front of knowledge. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And they look at that passage in, in 2 Timothy or 2 Peter 3 and they say, ha, grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And they accumulate all this knowledge, but they never grow in grace. And they find themselves in one of those 1 Corinthians 8 situations where uh, knowledge puffs up. The love that edifies. <clears throat> so the seasoning of, of uh, the believer's salt is a grace application, as we see in Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be with grace seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And it's perfect. If you have a grace orientation, you don't have to worry about the specifics, <laughs> right? You don't have to rack yourself and go, oh, what am I going to say? How do I answer? And, and all of that. Particularly if your humanity and your, your personality is such that you're, you're never saying the right thing at the right time anyway. Right? I mean, that's me. I'm typically driving home after an event when I suddenly dawn on me, oh, I should have said, right? And then it's too late. You can't turn around and go back because it's over. They're gone. You're gone. And it's too late. So instead of worrying about what to say, how about if you just relax and know how to say it? With a grace attitude, what you communicate in grace, how do you go wrong with grace? You can't lose with grace. So it's a grace application. And it's a grace application for the production of peace. Whatever else you want to say about salt as a preservative, we understand in temporal life and secular life that salt is a preservative. You use it to preserve, uh, for instance, salting meat. It was the standard action before uh, refrigeration and uh, freezer processes and things were invented. You could salt meat. Sailors would go to sea with salted pork. would last them for months. Mark 9.50. Back to our text. <clears throat> salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you salt? Make it salty again. Have salt in yourselves. But see, now notice, what happens when you have salt? You're at peace with one another. This is the benefit of having salt. Peace with one another. A manward focus for what is otherwise a heavenly activity. That's why your sacrifice has to be seasoned with salt. There is a human benefit. A human benefit. In any, any spiritual gift, in any function, you're functioning towards the Father in your priesthood. But if you're doing so without salt, without grace, it's like in 1 Corinthians 13. Use your gift, but don't have love. Bang a gong. That's all about all the good you're doing. If you're offering a sacrifice to the Father, but you don't have salt, meaning no grace orientation and no peace with your brothers and sisters, what are you really doing? So the seasoning of the believer's salt is a grace application for the production of peace. I think this gets practical. I think each believer ought to examine, do I have salt? 
Do I have salt? Am I grace-oriented? And am I at peace with my brothers and sisters in the body? Because if I have a grace deficiency and there's discord or, or lack of peace amongst the brethren, how do I think I'm possibly going to offer up a sacrifice of sweet-smelling savor? There's no salt with my offering. So we have the application of it there. All right, this is, I think this is my last slide. Yes. I didn't print off any notes this morning. <laughs> so I said, well, we'll just follow a slideshow and see where it takes us. The, um, <coughs> the next week when we come back, let's, uh, we've got six minutes left. John chapter 8, I want, or John chapter 7. find it interesting because we're supposed to be salt. We're supposed to be light. And he's commanding his disciples here to have this salt in themselves. And then the very next thing that takes place is a conflict with his human brothers. And his human brothers, you don't have a clue what he's doing. Think that they can tell him how to do it <laughs> and how he can grow his ministry. I find amazing. Everybody in the world has got an opinion how you can grow your ministry. These guys aren't even saved. So in John chapter 7, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. He was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews was, uh, the feast of Booths was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. In other words, this is too small a stage. Galilee, come on, you can have a larger audience, a larger calling. They've got all these words for how he can grow his ministry. And yet, <clears throat> the um, look, notice verse 5, not even his brothers were believing in him. <laughs> when you start taking advice, when I start taking advice from unbelievers how to run this ministry... I'm in trouble. <laughs> All right? So we're going to have some fun with it. We'll, t we'll come back to this next week and we'll have some fun with it. All right. Do we have any questions? Any thoughts? Concerns? Yes, ma'am. Well, in Leviticus, you're talking about actual rituals. You're talking about symbols. You're talking about the, the tangible things that were added to the offering. Real salt that was added to the real meat as it was, the animal was slain and the meat was offered up. So the, the, uh, the, the literal ritual in the Old Testament is simply a teaching tool or a picture of what we can understand today as the reality. Right, and it may not have been as developed for them. They may not have understood why they were doing what they were doing. Yeah, and there were a lot of the sacrifices that were all pointing ahead to Christ, and they were, they were obeying as if obedience was the real issue, when the real issue was learn these lessons and wait for your coming Savior. That's right. All right. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth of your word, for providing the voice to get through the, the, uh, the time, Father. That's, that's in your hands, too. The, the voice is yours. The... 
the allergies are yours, the trees are yours, you're in charge, and we thank you for that. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name, amen.